Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. This is episode 239. We're uh, recording this episode live on March 24th, 2022. I'm your host, Nick Rome, joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. And good evening. How are you tonight? Good evening, Barry. I'm good. We're going to see if uh, technology (laughs) issues are good, too. (laughs) But technology issues aside, we do have a great show for you tonight. We're going to be talking about sex, not biological, the act of as a form of distracted driving. And later, we'll be answering some questions from the community about needing good handwriting skills in UX. Uh, coping with job rejections after receiving positive feedback, and we'll discuss the merits of having a research portfolio. But first, some quick programming notes and a community update here. Uh, Barry, on your show this week, you dropped a new episode on 1202 Podcast, right? Our sister podcast. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so we dropped that, and it was all about musculoskeletal health and and an app that will help us do that, not only help you... um, so keep good musculoskeletal health, but actually if you have an injury, help you recover from it. And that's proving really popular already. Lots of really good feedback from people who um, have found that it's, you know, just talking about that is something we don't really talk about very often um, was really good. But next week we got one um, going to get recorded and it's all about how people act in crisis situations, particularly fire and and what we can do around that. But I'll take you, tell you more about that next week. Stay tuned for that one. Uh, In addition to the exciting stuff we have over on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, we also have coming up next week uh, for you all on Friday. It's going to be another HFES presidential town hall. So I'll sit down with HFES leadership to kind of talk about what is going on in the state of human factors as a field, as well as the organization. So please join us. It's going to be at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 Eastern. It's going to be on all our channels, as well as all the HFES official channels as well. So do check that out. All right. We know why you're here. You're here for this sexy story. So why don't we go ahead and get into it? It's... I think this may be the sexiest story we've ever done on the show. Uh, This is the part of the show all about Human Factors news. Uh, Barry, let's break it down. What do we have this week? So this week we're talking about understanding sexual activity whilst driving as a form of distracted driving. So researchers from Queensland University of Technology recently conducted a content analysis of 270 Pornhub videos featuring drivers in moving vehicles engaging in sexual activities. The research was conducted to investigate how sexual activity whilst driving impacts a driver's performance. The focus of the study was to understand interactions with road safety and driver behavior. So the researchers found that a third of drivers didn't wear seatbelts whilst a vehicle was moving. When they did wear a seatbelt, drivers were less likely to satisfactorily complete their activity. Um, Unsurprisingly, vehicle control was impaired with approximately three out of four drivers unable to keep two hands on the steering wheel as recommended. Staggeringly, 8% of drivers didn't have both feet on the pedal in the pedal area, resulting in most commonly reported sex uh, whilst driving incidents involving lane drifting. The researchers also found that drivers filming themselves during sex while driving is another form of distraction that hasn't been explored in previous research. Similar to other types of distracted driving, the researchers found that drivers engaging in sexual activity whilst driving appear to mitigate risks, citing a concern for potential legal sanctions. 
When considering this, it appears that drivers may attempt to conceal sexual activity by reducing their visible nudity and minimizing interactions with other road users. Mobile phones and cameras appear to interact with sexual activities while driving by uh, imposing potential restrictions on the range of sexual act activities. Implications for policymakers and practitioners are discussed within the paper. On a final note, sex while, uh, sex while driving is risky behavior that requires both multidisciplinary and cross-sectoral collaboration to address. Health, transport, and education all need to work together. So, Nick, sex while driving, do the find findings here do it for you? <laughs> well, so look, look, uh, we we actually talked about this at our pre-show last week. Uh, we found this one right before the show then, I think. It was kind of in the next news cycle. We, we laughed at this during the pre-show because we thought it was kind of... Um, a, a funny topic to talk about and the, and the way that the presenter on Twitter kind of went through their thread uh, was very humorous and the gifts that they were using, but man, this is actually a really awesome story and something that I think maybe uh, is, is quite novel in its, <laughs> in its, uh, in its study. So Barry, what, what are you thinking about this study in general? So in general, I think it, it really does throw up a lot of questions. Um, not all of which I'm not. I'm even sure we can actually ask. Never mind. Answer um, tonight. But there is kind of a. And we sort of said it before with some of these things. Uh, there's a bit of a well duh uh, moment about this because clearly, if you're focused on one activity, you're not going to be as focused on another activity. So, and but when we, do, I guess there's the science behind this as well. It is using porn videos. Um, ex exactly, really good experimental procedure i mean where's the control where you know that that type of activity but um there you know again it's it's something that a lot of people i think would be um really adverse to engaging a lot because it's because people get embarrassed but you know it's it, it's the should we be talking about such things and i think absolutely we should be there is a cultural bit as well um i think you know um in the us most of your cars are automatic um whereas in, in the uk you can't have two feet out of the um the pedal area because we got more pedals to to move um and i think we'll probably hit it up later but is this would, would this get worse or better depending on your perspective with autonomous driving and things like that i think it just throw up a lot of questions um that, that i think we should um should dive into yeah that, those are good questions and you know I, I don't think most of our cars here are automatic which is actually kind of you know an important distinction cool. yeah, i I, I would say, you know, maybe maybe one in 20. I don't know if that. So. So, yes, I think this is a great story for us to use as kind of a springboard to talk about risky driving behaviors in general and then, you know, kind of what distracted driving really means. So, you know, there's a couple different ways in which risky driving behaviors are characterized. And what we're going to be using tonight um, is kind of data from the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration. Uh, this is here based in the States. We do a lot of driving here in the States. Uh, mm. I, I know that's different in various places of the world, but I think it's important to note that, you know, here in the States, we do have a lot of data because we drive a lot. So we'll be using that as kind of the baseline here. Do we want to talk about these one by one? Barry, do you want to go over the first one here? Yeah, so drunk driving, drunk driving, the, the basically consuming alcohol um, whilst driving. So every day, about 28 uh, people in the US die in drink driving crashes. That's one person for every 52 minutes. Um, 2019, 10, just over 10,000 people lost their lives to drink driving. They're, those are deaths that are, that are 
all preventable. Um, but it is a well, you know, you, in, the, in the UK, uh, we have uh, similar problems. Um, and it's something that we really need to uh, to get into. But it's something that gets studied quite a lot as well. Do you want to hit, t- talk about um, drug impaired driving? Yeah, and a lot of these, these are very simple kind of explanations of what these risky driving behaviors are. But we are giving some of these statistics to kind of contextualize exactly mm-hmm. why they're risky. But yes, drug impaired driving, um, it's its completely illegal everywhere here in America uh, to drive under the influence of anything like alcohol, marijuana, opioids, methamphetamines, any other potentially drug prescribed either over uh, over the counter or uh, pres- prescribed that is um, sort of impairing, right? So it's completely to- illegal to drive with any of those. Uh, they they say impaired driving uh, or buzz driving is drunk driving. Um, and I think that's the same here. If you take a drug that impairs your ability to um, basically react and uh, perform in a way that's going to be safe for you as the driver and any passengers in your vehicle, as well as everybody else on the road, then we're talking about risky driving behavior here. So driving while impaired by any substance, legal or illegal, puts you and others in harm's way, like I kind of said, right? And in terms of safety facts for this one, 56% of drivers involved in serious injury and fatal crashes tested positive for at least one drug based on studied trauma centers. Uh, And that's from 2020. So fairly recent data, um, which is kind of shocking. So the... The next bit that we, we look at is obviously seatbelts. Seatbelts are now pretty much mandatory. Well, they're, they're mandatory in the US, they're mandatory in the UK. Um, so one of the safest choices drivers and passengers can make um, is to is to buckle up. So many Americans understanding the life-saving value of the seatbelt, the national use rate was at ninety point, just over 90% in 2021. They reckon that using a seatbelt saves um, said four, just, just under 15,000 lives um, in uh, 2017. And understanding the potential potentially fatal consequences of not wearing a seatbelt and learning what you do to make sure you and your family are properly buckled up every time you need to do that. I said that, that it's, um, it's mandatory to wear them in the U S is it? Um, it, it's definitely mandatory to wear them in the UK. Um, but just checking before I, I do make, um, gross assumptions there across the board. <laughs> yes, it is the law. It is the law, uh, to wear your seatbelt. Um, the, it's shocking to me that still only 90% wear them. The 10% that don't, I don't understand why it saves your life. Why? Mm-hmm. It's interesting it's culturally, actually. The, my, um, granddad really doesn't, and he still doesn't like wearing seatbelts. And even when he goes in and will wear them, will put his hand under the, 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 the cross belt that goes across your chest and pull it down from his chest because he says it feels it's constraining him. Now, I, th- I do think it is a cultural thing. Uh, sorry, um, a generational thing um, that actually most uh, most people, younger people now just wear a seatbelt without really thinking about it. But, um, it's just a scam from the big, big uh, seatbelt companies, man. Yeah. <laughs> just trying all right, let's let's get into this next one here. This is speeding and aggressive driving. So, you know, over over two decades here of data, uh, speeding has been involved in approximately a third of all motor vehicle fatalities. So going back to 2019, this is the latest data speed. Uh, speeding was a contributing factor in 26 percent of all traffic fatalities, killing 9478 people. If you thought we were just talking about sex in this episode, no, we're talking about death, too. So when we're talking about speed and this aggressive driving, we're talking about how speed really affects your safety because 
uh, from a human factor's perspective, it kind of reduces the amount of reaction time that you have to do something. Um, but this also isn't just talking about speed when considering like a speed limit. This is also uh, considering road conditions. So things like during bad weather, uh, when the road is under repair or an area that's not well lit at night. Right. So we're talking about these types of conditions. Um, when you talk about speeding, right, it really does endanger everybody. Um, you know, there's someone walks into the road with a speeder and it's over uh, and, yeah. and it's it's tragic. Um, and I mean, you know, there there is something to be said about speeding on the road. Right. The, we're all sort of familiar with these frustrations uh, with modern life and kind of juggling these busy schedules that we all kind of make for ourselves. But um, when thinking about speed limits, right, these are highly researched things that human factors professionals actually have a lot of say into and and they are put into place to protect everybody. Um, so so the limit is the limit. And my my wife always gets on me about this because I say, no, the limit's the limit when she says I'm driving like a grandpa. Yes, but it says 65. I'm not going to go 70. Anyway, that's that's my two cents. There's this next one and then we'll get into everything else. Yeah, interesting thing about the speed, though. The um, We are going through a thing in Wales at the moment where they're looking to try and take... Oh, so we have 30 mile an hour limits going through urban areas, and they're looking to reduce that, basically blanket reduce it down to 20 mile an hour. And it's interesting seeing people's reactions to to that consultation at the moment. Um, the last bit is around... Um, here is, is around dry, drowsy driving, and I'm sure this is something that most drivers have done at one time or another, particularly if you do a, a lot of miles. So fatigue has cost, uh, has cost the effects on the safety, health, and quality of life. Whether fatigue is caused by sleep restrictions due to new babies, uh, waking every couple of hours, or late shifts, long shifts, hanging out late with friends, or just a long and monotonous drive for your holiday, or even for work. And the negative outcomes can be the same. Uh, and that is impaired, con impaired con cognition and impaired performance. The that will result in crashes, workplace accidents, and health consequences. So that, this whole drowsy piece can be really difficult to, to tackle when your lifestyle doesn't align with avoiding drowsy driving. As you just mentioned around um, wanting to be in your vehicle a lot more, we live in a 24-7 society with an emphasis on work, longer commutes, and um, exponential advancement of technology. People don't get the sleep that they need, and I can really, really... Um, talk about that a lot at the moment um but effectively dealing with the drowsy driving problem requires really to us to fundamentally change our societal norms and especially attitudes towards um drowsy driving so we've done quite a lot of the um risky driving behaviors what about what what is distracted driving can you give us an insight into actually what distracted driving is yeah we'll talk about distracted driving i i do want to make one kind of comment on all the ones that we've covered so far, and including distracted driving, uh, these a lot of these statistics are based pre-pandemic, and so there these statistics are going to change over time, especially as more people are working from home and people are commuting less. There's going to be some differences in the data, so I I just want to kind of caveat all of this stuff that we're reporting on now, right? A lot of this stuff is from 2019, 2021, 2020, so it's like kind of before or during the beginning of the pandemic, it's it's still a little bit out of date is what I'm saying here. And I, I just take that with a grain of salt. So yes, 
let's talk about kind of the main course here, distracted driving. Uh, and, and we can talk about it in the lens of this article here, which is suggesting that sex while driving could be a form of distracted driving. So let's actually break this down. So distracted driving, this could be defined as any activity kind of that, that takes your attention away from, um, activities critical for safe driving or operating a vehicle, right? So these distractions can be categorized into three different areas. If you think about visual distractions, manual distractions, or cognitive distractions, if you want examples of each, right? A visual distraction might be looking at a phone to read a text message. That is something that is distracting you from looking at the road. Um, you are looking at manual distractions. These are sort of the activities that take the hands away from the wheel. Uh, so not taking the <laughs> the article <laughs> into account here, uh, but, you know, an another example might be um, sort of dialing a handheld phone, right? So you hold the phone yep. in one hand and you're dialing the other and you're holding the steering wheel with your knees. Uh, and, and then the last one here is cognitive. And so these types of distractions uh, is, is when a driver's mind is off the road. So this is any time that your mind floats to a different thought, any time that you are sort of thinking about work while you're on the road, those types of things, um, or or sort of, uh, we talked about working on the road, like dictating an email while you're um, kind of talking to your phone, doing this on the road, right? That is, that is mm -hmm. a, uh, you're, you're taking your mind off the road. So, you know, there's a lot of different distractions that require a mix of any one of these th three sort of cognitive resources at any given time. Um, so in this handheld phone example, it requires all three resources and is considered um, a distraction for both or all visual, manual and cognitive. And when we look at this article through the lens of distracted driving, traditionally, sex would fall across all three of these categories. Right. It is both a it is, it is a visual distraction, a manual distraction and a cognitive distraction. I'm not going to describe specific acts here. I think. <laughs> Uh, everyone can use their imaginations for that. We're trying to keep this, I wouldn't say somewhat family friendly, but we're trying to keep it away from the R rating. So yes. <laughs> we'll put it there. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about some of these distracted driving statistics? Yeah, no, absolutely. The uh, So in 2019, there were 3,142 people killed and many more people injured um, in motor vehicle crashes involving distracted drivers. 8% of factory crashes in uh, factory crashes, 8% of fatal crashes in 2019 were reported as distracted affected crashes. And at any given daylight moment across America, approximately 660,000 drivers are using cell phones or manipulating electronic devices whilst driving. So new voice activated technologies intend to reduce crashes due to distraction are even more distracting than previous in vehicle technology, which I think some people find surprising, but actually when you, actually think about it makes sense um and if you're texting whilst driving it raises a driver's crash risk by 23 times i mean that's 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 a significant amount of multiplication staggering yeah yeah do you want to go into the uh, into the effects yeah let's jump into some of the effects of distracted driving a lot of these are kind of fairly straightforward we don't need to go too into detailed here but um Obviously, if you're distracted, you're going to take increased time that your eyes are off the road. Uh, you're, you're not going to be looking at the road, uh, which is giving you critical visual information about the state of everything. Talk about situation awareness when you are dipping out of that situation awareness for a couple seconds to answer a text or uh, 
have sex, then you are, in fact, not looking at the road, right? You're also having an increased reaction time to hazards, especially when you are looking at those cognitive distractions, right? So thinking about something else while you're on the road is going to increase the reaction time uh, when, uh, I don't know, a ball comes into the middle of the road from a kid playing in the street or um, a tree falling. I, you know, there's there's a, any number of things that can happen. We're also looking at increased braking reaction time, and especially if your feet are not in the pedal area, as this article <laughs> says, right? <laughs> that will have a huge impact on on sort of your braking reaction time. And so um, not only are you not able to swerve out of the way, but you are not able to brake as easily. Um, there's also a greater speed variability and slower mean speed when you are distracted driving. And slow speed can be dangerous too. Um, you know, the, the, and and when we talk about speed variability, we're talking about kind of not a consistent speed, which can also be dangerous for drivers around you because they can't anticipate your movements if you are distracted doing other things and hitting the gas and hitting the brakes at an infrequent, inconsistent rate. And then sort of the the we talked about the lane deviations and the lane departures uh, within the context of the article. That's another thing that can happen as an effect of distracted driving. And lastly, kind of uh, you can follow cars closer uh, when you are distracted too, because you are not uh, sort of doing the recommended counting in your head of paces behind a vehicle for every, uh, you know, 10 kilometers per hour or 10 miles per hour that you are going. Um, and so that is kind of distracted driving in a nutshell, risky driving behaviors in a nutshell. Any other final thoughts on that stuff before we start talking about this article in the context of all this? I guess the one thing that we haven't, talked about at all is motivation um in, in with this in terms of that risky beha risky behavior because all the other sort of risky behaviors that we've talked about tend to be um you've kind of done it be because you've um you've ended up in a circumstance or it might be accidental so like drink driving you've drank something and then thought to drive whatever with the article that we're talking about um they they are taking part in a specific act um and they're doing the, the two acts together so um, you know, you talked about why are they doing that in the first place? So they actually want to engage in risky behavior. That's that's part of the, uh, I guess that's part of the thrill. That's part of the motivation behind doing it, which maybe um, is something that we should be picking up in the in the article discussion. But again, it, it looks about why we you dig back into why would people be motivated to take that sort of risky behavior? Um, and we see that across also all, um, all parts of life as well, where people take part in in risky acts for the adrenaline buzz for for that type of thing. So that's something to look into that motivational bit about why that why you would take part in that sort of activity in the first place. No, that's that's a great point. I mean, you know, when we talk about motivation, you're talking about some of these instances like drunk driving, where your uh, sort of uh, judgment might be impaired, right? Mm -hmm. um, drug impaired, same thing. Judgment might be impaired. Seatbelt driving, seatbelt safety. You might just not have the knowledge of you know how how effective it is at saving your life. You might just be uncomfortable, um, mm -hmm. and that to me is more of an active choice. But since that's so such a high use rate, I don't want to focus too much on that one. When it comes to speeding and aggressive driving, obviously, if something happens that agitates you and and irritates uh, your um, I don't know status quo, then then you are more likely to engage in risky behaviors because. Again, your judgment is impaired. And when it comes to drowsy driving, again, we have that judgment impaired thing. Now, distracted driving is kind of the one that's interesting because your judgment 
is not necessarily impaired by any external factors here. Um, You are sort of choosing to engage in some of these behaviors, whether it's looking at your phone or, um, you know, responding to a text message or having sex in, in this article. Right. And so, yeah, it's really interesting. And thank you for bringing up that motivation. Right. So um, let's talk about the article discussion. Is there any like key takeaways that you want to talk about here, Barry, in terms of uh, distracted driving as it relates to having sex in a vehicle while it's moving? There is a certain element here about firstly, how did they get funded to do that? And can I get some <laughs> of that funding? Um, it is interesting that they've, that the way that they've bought a lot of that out, um, that they've, that they focus on this this area of distraction when actually distraction can, can take um, a, a broad variety. Of, as we talked about tonight, there, there's loads of stuff that you can be distracted around there. Um, so I guess the the uh, uh, an interesting bit around it is if you're looking at this behavior on um, on the internet, then is that going to increase the ability, the, the risk of then you wanting to copy that um, that activity. So, how do you make sure that that um, that bit there is, you know, is that the right thing to do? Should we should they be putting that sort of um, that material on there? Um, my, I mean, the bit that I mentioned in in my commentary is the impact on future car development um, and autonomy. Um, and I realize I've just stolen two of your points. That's fair enough. Um, but the the autonomy piece I think is really interesting because we've already seen. Um, accidents involving um, cars that have, have have autonomous capability where people know that they're meant to be sat there with their hands ready to go around the steering wheel and and they don't they've been you know they've, they've been um, engaging in behavior that they knew was not what was required of them to, to drive in some cases they've been like in the back seat and they've been asleep they've um, pick any almost any one of them um, then behaviors above that we talked about the autonomy element makes that more likely therefore it does lend itself to will we'll be seeing more of this uh, sexual activity whilst um, whilst it was in a car because it it allows the driver to be uh, to not to pay as much attention to the road i'll stop stealing your points now what do you no, think about the th- that's that's great no i think these points are great and i think the um the, the interesting piece to me also i'll jump on to the automated vehicles because there's kind of a late breaking story that just happened this week we posted in our our news roundup on our blog um you can go check that out and it's actually a candidate for next week's story so if you want to hear about that join us on twitter uh vote in the poll or become a patron and vote there uh but u.s regulators here in the states no longer require fully autonomous vehicles to have human controls so we are starting to go the way of where there doesn't need to be any sort of human input on these autonomous vehicles and so acts like this might become more and more prevalent. Um, And, you know, it does kind of bring into question like the whole human in the loop concept, right? How do you kind of keep the human engaged with what's going on around you in case there is an emergency scenario, someone crashes into you while you're having sex in a vehicle that's automated? Like, how do you how do you react to that when you are distracted or even, you know, as simple as something where you are working on a project on your laptop because, you know, you're just it's all automated. You don't need to worry about it. How do you keep the human in the loop? So it brings up that whole uh, sort of question. I think one thing that I really appreciate is kind of the authors, uh, one of the authors on Twitter, they, they had this whole thread here and they kind of uh, highlighted the importance of doing this type of research. And yes, there there are questions about controls. But when you think about having sort of a um, 
a, a study like this, there's there's a bunch of things that need to go right in order to have a true experimental study to you know analyze. Yeah. And and this is sort of self-reported um, acts. And I wonder too, like how much of this is professional, where they have you know kind of a car in tow on a trolley, right? Or or is this like user submitted where it is actual people performing these acts in a vehicle that's moving? I don't know. That, that'd be an interesting question to kind of break down in sort of these 270 videos that they looked at. Um, so, so I think, like I said, the, the, the thing that I really appreciate is that this author really breaks down sort of the importance of this. You already mentioned the future vehicles. You already mentioned the copycat behaviors. But I think there's another one here um, that's kind of getting at how we think about distraction and really starting to think about these distractions and very complex tasks, right? I think those these distracted driving behaviors that really do take the visual, the manual, and the cognitive distraction all in one go. But then there's also these nested tasks that they talk about, such as undressing. Um, and that is sort of a complex distraction to sort of describe these nested interactions where you are uh, doing something else within a larger task. And so when we think about sort of our conceptualization of distraction, all these things are really important. And um, you know, I think kind of the final note here is that this is an incredibly risky behavior. Uh, and like, like you said in the, in the blurb that this really does require a lot of different industries to kind of look at this, right? Health. How do you communicate that this is not a, a, <laughs> healthy behavior to engage in while you are on the road, uh, transportation, you know, I, I would like to see how prevalent this issue is, honestly, like where the reports from like the NHTSA or any other, uh, government, um, you know, highway administration, like where, where are the reports and how many of those in fact are as a result of sex while driving? And is it really that big of an issue to to talk about or is this kind of a very niche area that still is kind of fun and cheeky to talk about i don't know um but yeah it's going to require a bunch of different uh sources to kind of solve this issue um and as it becomes more prevalent with these automated vehicles any other closing thoughts on this one barry this is a fun one yeah, I guess there's there's two. One is if there is more research required, then Nick's email address is. Um, and also, if you listen back to the, to um, to Nick's final closing comments, you'll notice that um, he put in um, a lot of stuff there because his mum's listening, and, and he made out that he doesn't li doesn't look at any of these sort of websites at all, which I thought was very clever. And my mum's not listening, so I don't I don't need to get away with that. Um, but no, I think it is interesting. I like top. I, I like research like this that is willing to cross barriers, is willing to make us think about what we're doing and not, yes, people, it, it, it's sort of embarrassing and stuff like that. People don't like talking about sex and all that sort of stuff, but it, we absolutely have to on a whole range of topics. But this is quite, because it is dangerous. It, it, you know, I, I, I get why people do this sort of stuff, fun, exciting, all that sort of stuff, but it's dangerous. So yes, yeah, so what are, what are going to be the impacts of this going on? And also comfort. Surely you've got to make sure that the the, um, the seats in the car are comfortable to, for doing this sort of thing, which is also a human yeah. factor. It, do do they recline far enough? You know that type exactly. of thing. Is it? Yeah, yeah. Do they do they go back far enough so that you can get your feet in the pedal area? There's all these all these considerations, yes. obviously. 
Yeah. Well, well, Barry, I think we handled that quite well. Um, I'm, I'm very proud of us. <laughs> Maturely. I thought we, we were very mature about the whole thing. Thank you to our patrons for this week. And thank you to everyone who participated in our Twitter poll for selecting our topic. And thank you to our friends over at Queensland University of Technology for our news story this week. This was really enjoyable to talk about. If you want to follow along, we do post links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups in our blog. You can also join us on our Discord for more sexy discussion on this story and more. We're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons. We especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. Uh, thank you so much. Your continued support helps the show keep going. Uh, we're always looking for more patrons because the more we get, obviously, the more we can expand our capability and accessibility to others. We talked about this in the pre-show. Uh, but I do want to talk a little bit about our Discord. Uh, we do have a Discord server. It's If you want to go to it, it's go.humanfactorscast.media slash Discord. Very easy URL to get to. Uh, this, this is a great opportunity for you to get involved with other Human Factors professionals from all over the world. We're always having great uh, conversations in there. And I'd like to take this moment to kind of highlight some of these conversations right now. I asked a question in there earlier this week about kind of what's the worst mistake that you've made in recent history. Uh, and we got some good answers in there. I won't spoil them here. You got to go to the, you got to go to the discord to check those out. Both Barry and I responded to that one. Um, you know, additionally, there are questions about sort of breaking into sort of UX and human factors work from other domains. That's that's another conversation thread that's going on right now um, in terms of kind of tailoring your past work for uh, getting into the field of human factors, UX research, that type of thing. So there's always great conversations going on over there. Highly encourage anyone who's listening. If you want to get involved with the community, uh, please go check it out. Um, you can either you can also chat with others in our voice channels. I'll occasionally jump in there while I'm looking for news stories. Um, and, you know, if you are interested in the Digital Media Lab, we do have, uh, you know, all of our lab chat is kind of done through the Discord platform. It's hidden to the public, but you can interact with all of our lab members and kind of ask them questions if it's something that you're curious about and if you're interested in that type of thing. Um, it's an incredibly effective tool. Anyway, Discord bump done. I think it's time that we get into this next part of the show we like to call... It came from... It came from... Yes, it came from this week. It's all Reddit. And this is the part of the show where we search all over the Internet to bring you topics that the community is topping, uh, talking about. If you find any of these useful, wherever you're watching, listening, please give us a like to help other people find this content. So that way it might help them too. Barry, I have selected a somewhat controversial topic because you did one last week uh, on on what was it? The uh, the paper prototyping. I have chosen one this week 
on handwriting. I want to talk about this one first. Evangelizing that UX and UI designers or human factors practitioners improve their handwriting to be more on par with industrial designers and architects. Why? In front of clients, handwriting is an autobiography. It creates clarity, builds trust, and increases confidence. This is by Sachio222 on the user experience subreddit. That's it. That's the post. Uh, it is a link to a video. You can watch it there. Uh, we'll put the link in the description. It triggered me, Barry. H here we are. Um, what do you think about this concept? Do UX folks, UI folks, and human factors folks need to have good handwriting in order to sort of communicate concepts in front of clients? No. Next question. Um, the, so from my perspective, my handwriting is terrible. So, you know, I'll, I'll put my my thing out there that's why i type most of my stuff up but i think the main point i think i use this is if i'm workshopping and that can be whiteboarding on post-its and things like that but it kind of for me gets out a lot of the the passion that you're talking with and all them sort of notes and that type of thing are all very much of its time and you'll probably transcribe them later and, and that type of thing if i was writing longhand reports then yes my my writing would have to get a lot better but um the I don't I think if I could if I could write neater then yes that that would be an, an, an obvious advantage I'm not I'm definitely not not saying that but am I going to sit there and slow down my creative thought just to get my handwriting so everybody can see it um possibly not um I guess the you, you look at different skills in the room if, if there is somebody with better handwriting than me then I'll pick on them to to do the uh, to do the whiteboard stuff um, but I think it's no, you shouldn't be picking. I don't think you should be picking on people for their for the state of their handwriting. Um, it's more that you're likely to to get more people to turning off engaging with with what with your activity if you're just going to critique them on the on the way that they write. That said, it should all be legible and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, um, I'd rather people got involved than worried about what how their writing was going to look like. Yeah. Anyway, this, you think <laughs> this is shit? I I triggered me because I I think. Your resources can be spent in so much other better, more efficient ways than improving your handwriting, right? Why don't you improve your research methodology? Why don't you improve the the tools in which you're the, the tools and methods in which you are collecting user data, the way in which you communicate? Now I would I would argue that communication is an absolutely critical skill that you should invest in. Because understanding what somebody is saying, reading between the lines of what they're saying, and asking clarifying questions about what they are saying is key to getting good data that's going to inform your design. So with that said, handwriting is not going to do any of that. Um, this is this is this makes me mad. <laughs> it makes me mad. It's such a bad take. It's such a bad take. Uh don't don't worry about your handwriting. If it sucks, it sucks. But it sucks. It's one, yeah. Yeah, it's not the end of the world, and it's not the people who advocate that this is uh, sort of the next way to go. I don't know. It, it just it it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Anyway, there's the controversial one for this week. Get it out of the way at the top. <laughs> We're going to get Sorry. into this. <laughs> we'll get into this next one. This is how to cope with job rejections after receiving positive feedback. This is uh, written by Dream in White on the user experience subreddit. They go on to write, hi, everyone. I was wondering if you guys have any advice on how to cope with job rejections, particularly when interviewers respond with, quote, very positive feedback, but not, quote, the right fit for the role at the moment. 
It has been really disheartening getting several rejections after doing multiple interviews only to get this type of feedback. I'm not sure if they are just saying that to make me feel better or if I could genuinely be doing something better. Also, do you guys have any advice on how I can do any better? I felt good coming out of each interview, but get these rejections ultimately. I'm not sure where I'm going wrong. Uh, They go on to write, uh, they go on to provide a few examples. I won't go into them, but to summarize, basically their companies are effectively citing timing and fit for the reason that they weren't hired. So Barry, um, how do you cope with job rejections? Have you ever had a job rejection? How do you cope with it? Um, I've been rejected for many jobs. Um, And it's, I guess, more recently. So obviously having run my own company for the past 10 years, um, I guess the rejections we get more of now is when we maybe go for contracts and and we we lose the contract. We don't win the contract. You know, we'll get feedback saying, "Oh, it's really good," and this, that, and the other. And you're like, "Yeah, but if it was that good, why didn't why didn't I get it?" Um, all you can do, I mean, fundamentally, the person who's hiring for that job will hire the candidate they that they think is the best for their job. And on the one hand. We, I, I really, I'm a big fan of employment law um, and the discrimination laws that make sure that you are treated fairly when you go when you go into an interview. That you are, um, you know, you get you get to um, you're not discriminated against on sex, col- uh, color, creed, um, all that sort of stuff. You're very much taken at the the technical capability of what you do. But fundamentally, that the person who's hiring is going to have the candidate that they want to hire, um, and it might be one candidate, two candidates, however many. And the rest, the rest of us aren't, just aren't going to get the job. And certainly I feel when I've had to let people down, I don't really want to go back to people and say, um, you know, you were awful, you were rubbish, I just didn't like you, and that sort of stuff. You want to give them, you want to give people feedback that they can constructively go back and use. And I've, I've interviewed quite a few candidates. And in fact, we did, we did it at the start of, the, uh, start of this year. Um, no, sorry, started last year when we were we had some amazing candidates come and come and talk, and it was you know a, a hair's whisker between who we were hiring and, and, and second and third place. So you you don't want to go back and say you know it was close. These were the great bits. These are the bits where we think you could improve. Um, you've just got to take them at the face value. Um, take the take the uh, the feedback that you've got, build upon it on the plus points. Work on the on the perceived um, weaknesses that that, that, that might have been highlighted, but also don't forget that the sometimes that you might have just had a weakness highlighted because they felt they had to say something. Um, and some, I think a lot of this, particularly if you're getting this sort of feedback, where where you're getting really good feedback most of the time, it is a case of it's not you, it's me. Um, as in, it's the hirers. They just they just chosen they they've just chosen the candidate that they want that they feel is the be- is the better fit for their job role organization and it it just is what it is i'm afraid i think um certainly from my perspective nick what do you think have you ever been rejected for a job yes i have um and it's it's almost worse in a lot of ways when you don't hear back and so Mm -hmm. i guess be thankful that you are hearing back even in the first place uh so you know you can you can think that you have like this amazing sort of rapport with the team and with you know, everybody involved in the hiring process and you feel like you gel with the company. But honestly, it could be any number of things that they chose not to hire you for. And Barry, like you said, it could be kind of just teetering on the line, flip a coin, who gets it, right? Like there's a lot of good candidates out there. And if for whatever reason, somebody is just a better fit culturally, then that might be a consideration, right? It could be a culture fit. It could be, um, 
a convenience fit. You know, you might you might not live as close, even though you're remote, you might not live as close to the rest of the team. And that might be a consideration, too. Um, there's just a million different things in what it could be. And so I wouldn't sit and ruminate on it. I know it's hard not to do. But my advice is kind of, um, you know, ask these questions that you're asking this this reddit right ask these questions to them right like hey uh do you have any advice on what i can do to improve for the next person or the next company that i apply to right and ask them for some of that gen genuine feedback and if if they're a good company and want to provide some of that they will what do you have to lose right they they already said they're not going to hire you so you might as well get something out of that process and and sort of really analyze what went well what didn't and maybe try to figure out what it could be, but don't drive yourself mad doing that. Um, there's, there's just a lot of things it could be. Don't beat yourself up over it. Uh, just, you know, head down, keep applying. You'll get there. Um, yeah. Look I, forward. Keep, keep looking forward. Don't look back. Look forward. Yeah. Well, head down, do the work and then look forward. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's get into this last one here. Do you need a portfolio for UX research? This is by the and Antinon, the Antinon on the user experience subreddit. I'm currently applying to UX design jobs and internships, but my main experience is just volunteer nonprofit work, and it's competitive out there. I like design a lot, but I also understand that UX, in UX, the research is the foundation of everything else, and I want to start looking into those jobs too. I have some short-term experience in research, a research sprint or school's design lab, developing user research plans and feedback, et cetera. But my resume right now is tailored to design. What sort of skills and knowledge are they looking for in applications? How important is my portfolio in UX research versus UX design? What can I do to make myself a good candidate, especially uh, for associate or junior roles? Barry, there's, there's a lot to dissect here, actually. <laughs> um, what are your thoughts? So firstly, there's no such thing as just volunteer non-for-profit work. Um, volunteer work, work is work, whether it, whether you're paid for it or not. How you're, um, how you're engaged with it is got nothing to do with um, monetary value. Um, most people I find who do volunteer work actually put more effort into the volunteer work than they do the, the do the paid work, because because of the way that uh, our minds work around it. It's it's weird but true. Um, uh, but you are right; it is competitive out there. I don't get hung up that much about the difference in in the UX and human factors field. Um, generally, generally, I find that people know a little bit of everything and then have the stuff that they like to do. So, I think that you, you know, put, having this big divide between the research and the design elements, they both sort of kind of blend into into each other to a certain extent. Um, and if you've got some experience there, then great. But you want to do more than if you bring that out, show that you can do uh, do both sides. Um, but yeah, don't throw your portfolio away just because you think it's in in the wrong side. Um, show something that's that's balanced. Um, and because fundamentally, when you get to interview, when you get to apply for uh, roles, really what they're looking for is you. They're looking for your personality. They're looking for your drive, your commitment to. Um, I've had um, certainly experiences where I went for one job and it was all around an area of, of human factors I'd never done before. Never, I just hadn't even um, been anywhere near it. And But I sort of chatted to them and told them what I was like, the sort of um, stuff I get involved in, the sort of stuff I like to do. 
you know, I, I love learning new te techniques, new ideas, and that type of thing. And they're like, oh, you don't actually have the skills that we're looking for, but you've, um, you know, you've shown a commitment to them. We're fairly sure you could pick them up. It's not rocket science, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and ended up getting the role, which was, which was great. And then ended up growing myself within, within that piece. So yeah, I think look at yourself um, as much as anything else, bring out what you can do um, and tell people what you want to, where you want to go, what you want to do. Most good companies, if they're, if they see the, the personality within you will help you um, go in the direction you want to go in. I yeah. Think. Yeah. I, I, I have a problem with labeling a thing, a research portfolio. Um, when you think about UX design or design in general, it makes sense to have a portfolio of work in which you have sort of uh, these examples of past work that you can point to and say, look, here's the process that I used for this. These are the components that I used for this because of X, Y, and Z. This is kind of the process. But when it comes to research, Really, your research is your body of work that you've worked on before. And really, you're going to want to take anything that's relevant to the job that you're applying and sort of make a job talk out of it. In a lot of cases, you're going to do like a presentation or some sort of overview about the breadth and depth of research that you've conducted and talk a lot about the methodology that you employ and not necessarily, you know, some of the outcomes or the pretty screens or whatever that comes out of it. So I have a problem with calling something a UX research portfolio when you think about, you know, like, hey, I've done this methodology and this is where I've applied it. I mean, take note of that, but don't you don't need a website to say that or you don't need sort of this fancy um you know, tool online through Figma that shows you like everything that you've done. No, just talk about it. Make a PowerPoint that's good enough for most people because really what you're doing in those roles is not design. You're doing research. And so, I don't know, just take a look at the body of work that you've done and pull out the research stuff. Now, in terms of the specific person that, you know, they're looking for, how do I uh, sort of reframe some of the stuff that I've done in design work and aim that towards research? You can do that. Um I'm not going to spoil the answer to that because we have the answer to that in our Discord. Go check it out there. Um, but but really, the gist is that you have work that you've done. Reframe it and and try to make it more applicable to the role that you want. Okay, we've made it through. Barry, it's time for that that one more thing. No introduction, just one more thing. So, contrary to what I usually do, I'm going to go with one more thing as opposed to I'm, I'm not no twofers. Um, but it's just been here in Wales. It rains a lot, and it's been winter and all that sort of stuff. But it's now nice weather, and for the past few days, it's been really nice. And I've been out. I've been outside. I've been doing some bits of DIY, but not just the the stuff that is in the house. And I, and I, and I should be doing. My Amanda, my wife says I should be doing all this. I haven't done any of that. I've been doing stuff that I've been enjoying. I've been doing some woodworking and creating a new workbench and and all this sort of stuff and a bit of gardening. And it's just helped my mental health so much. I've just felt like a different person this week, like a lot more optimistic and a lot, lot, um, lot more forward-looking, and I've just really enjoyed it. So, yay for nice weather and yay for this past week. Uh, it's probably the lack of COVID too is probably why you're feeling like a brand new person. There is a bit of that as well, yes. So <laughs> the, the the COVID the uh, the COVID fairy has left the body, uh, which is good. And I did another test. A friend of mine tested positive uh, today, so I, I took another test just in case maybe it come back or something. Uh, but no, that, yes, that that is true. But um, but nice weather as well. Yeah, 
Well, good. I'm I'm really happy for you. Yes, the weather is changing. Uh, we're gonna go see the cherry blossoms this weekend, so that'll be fun. Uh, for for me, my one more thing. Um, I've I've talked about my mental health here on the show before. Um, I recently diagnosed with ADHD. Uh, I'm gonna talk about drugs. Um, I was recently prescribed new drugs uh, because I wasn't quite sure how effective the last batch was, and I won't name specific names here, but. This this one operates very differently from the other ones that I have tried, and um, it is both wonderful and um, really difficult to deal with. So during the day, I take these things, and I'm like very, very focused and productive with what I'm working on. When they start wearing off in the evening, um, I get really irritable. Uh, it is like, it is so annoying because in my head, I'm like, don't get irritable. Like it's very, it's a very small thing. It's going to set you off. Why is it setting you off? That's so weird. Um, and it's just, it's, it's so weird the way that some of these interactions with your brain chemistry work. Uh, and I just find it endlessly fascinating to like, I, I'm treating this like trial and error, right? Like this, this is going to be like a month long, maybe month and a half long trial at various dosages. And, um, various combinations with other medications that I'm taking. And so it's like, it's, it is this interesting uh, way to approach it from like a scientist perspective of mm -hmm. like, well, how, how is my body reacting? And I'm, I'm trying to like take that objective perspective and being like, yes, I'm very much more irritable when this thing wears off and I can feel it wearing off and I can feel it coming on and I can, I'm noticing a, a market increase in my productivity at work. And I am, you know, like I'm, I'm writing notes about this so that way I come back to my, uh, my prescriber and say, you know, here's, here's everything that's going on. Uh, and I am treating it like an experiment and I'm comparing and cool. contrasting across groups. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very fascinating. And I would love to talk to anybody else who has had a similar experience because it's just, I don't know. It's something I haven't experienced before. Anyway, <laughs> that's going to be it for today, everyone. If you like this episode and enjoy some of the discussion about distracted driving and how we might be able to eliminate that with AI and automation and vehicles, I'll encourage you to go listen to episode 227, uh, How Cars of the Future Might Understand Our Passengers. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week for more in-depth discussion. Like I said, you can join us on our Discord community. It's a great place. Uh, for uh, everything else, you can visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things that you can do. One, wherever you're at right now, stop, leave us a five-star review. That's free for you to do. Uh, takes a little bit of your time, but it really helps out the show. Two, if you're so willing, tell other people about the show. That really helps the show grow because it comes at your recommendation that you, in fact, are enjoying what you're listening to. Three, if you're financially able and want to help support the show, help support others by becoming more accessible or providing more tools for us to use internally in the lab, you can always consider supporting us on Patreon. As always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Th Kirby, thank you for being on the show today and talking about this taboo topic with us. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about explicit acts that they can perform in moving vehicles? Um, I think there's probably a different Twitter account for that. Uh, but my Twitter account is at Baz underscore K. You can find me on there at any time. Or if you want to listen to some of the other stuff we get, uh, we talk about with the interview side of things, then 1202 The Human Factors Podcast is at 1202podcast.com. We almost made it through. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me across social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again for tuning in to Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it depends. depends. 
spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.